no Mickey show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello and welcome to the No Mickey Show. It is a Fem Friday, July 16th, live back in Athens, Greece. Uh, for those of you who have been watching closely, uh, we have been on the road here in Greece uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks. We had some connection issues this week and we have connection issues now. Turns out when you're in a country with austerity, sometimes telecommunications doesn't work great. That includes New York, by the way, because there was one day last week where New York had the issues because of the power outages. And now I'm in Greece where um, we have Wi-Fi. It's just a little bit unstable. So I, I'm, I, I appreciate all of your patience for you know, tuning in as we've changed this, this show format. Uh, there's a huge time difference as well. So we're really grateful to you for tuning in and for being patient with um, all the connection issues that so many of us have been having. And a lot of it, I think, it has to do with the, the heat wave um, that's happening globally. So thank you for, for being great viewers and listeners, and we just love you. Um, I just finished up a conference. It was a left conference in the Athens Riviera area. So just a little bit south of Athens. Our dear friend, Arun Chowdhury, who hosts the committee program, is going to be doing a great show on Monday. You've got to watch it. Uh, talking to, to folks in Greece, because he was here in Greece. And we are airing a special with Arun and our friend, Dimitri, who uh, is going to give us a little bit of a rundown of what's happened since the economic crisis. You can check that out, not on today's episode, but it is going to be airing uh, this weekend. You'll definitely want to watch it. It's a special. And we're going to go back to Norm uh, next week. Still might have connection issues, but, 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 normal format, uh, twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Eastern. That's our new format. The committee program still airs at 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and we're going to be probably doing some other special stuff in the, in the coming weeks. But I, I just wanted to thank you all for being really patient in this process. It's been a unique, you know, experience going out on the road, uh, vaccinated and interacting with people. And Arun and I talk about that a little bit on this, this special program. But from my personal perspective, I can just say it was really an incredible week where I got to speak with folks, leaders, uh, really leaders, organizers and activists from all over the European region, um, in the Balkans and Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, Western Asia as well, uh, talking about just some of the crises that they're facing, you know, whether it's the rise of fascism and the flavors of the rise of fascism, uh, how they handle the pandemic and how their economies are being affected and affected by, uh, the pandemic emergencies and, and really what, you know, what they can do on the left uh, to work with each other because one thing that came up over and over when we talk about this in the show today is climate change, we're just, we're just too far gone. And what is it going to take? There has to be a reassessment of strategy. We can't just rely on the EU and the Paris Agreement and some business initiatives and some regulations. We really have to do more. So we're going to talk about that on today's show with Margaret Klein-Solomon. But first, uh, we're going to have a conversation about sex. And, and this does relate to this conference as well because the majority of people at this conference, without it being announced, just realized were women leaders. Uh, you know, there were women leaders, leaders of opposition parties in Turkey, uh, you know, secretaries of different 
ministers of different agencies in different countries. And it was absolutely the women who had the most conviction, um, who were the most thoughtful. And of course, it's Fem Friday, so I have to articulate this. But on top of all that, uh, we did have conversations, you know, aside, uh, side by conversations about some of the issues uh, related to Me Too and sexuality and consent. And that is what we're going to be discussing at the top of the show. So uh, this is an interesting show. It's a, it's a deep show. Uh, we're going to go to the end of the show and talk, go back to New York City and discuss what happened in this DA's race where a woman did put in $8.1 million into her race and she did not win. So really interesting show. Thank you to all for, for tuning in on um, this new format, Wednesdays and Fridays. We're, we're still working on some things, so thank you for your patience. And if you are not already, please join us on Patreon. Join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. That's what helps all of us make you know these things work, especially when we're on the road. I have to like, you know... You don't even know. Like I, I had to reassess the budget because, like, I'm taking uh, lights and cameras and sound with me, and so there's luggage fees. It's just things that you wouldn't even think of that really make a huge difference when patrons contribute. Um, so we're really grateful to all of you for for joining the show. And of course, if you're not already, make sure to like and subscribe. And of course, thank you to all of our folks in the chats and taking on the trolls and working those algorithms. Make sure to share the show with your friends and family. Uh, get the word out. We're going to be doing some really interesting things in the coming weeks. Um, so thank you. We have a great show today. All right. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Catherine Angle is the author of Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again, Women and Desire in the Age of Consent. She also teaches at the University of London. She has a PhD in the history of psychiatry and sexuality from the University of Cambridge's history and philosophy science department. Let's talk about sex, Catherine. <laughs> Dr. Angle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so you've been working on this for for, for a while now, several decades. And I'm, I'm just very curious, like since you first became very interested in the subject and started studying it and researching sex and sexuality and, and how it relates obviously to women, um, how, how has like the stigma of talking about sex and researching sex shifted over the last you know, couple of decades for you? Well, I think in many ways it has, hasn't it? I mean, we do see and hear people talking about sexuality and sex much more um, than they used to in the kind of, you know, the public realm, the general media. Um, and, you know, from one perspective, there has been a lessening of stigma for women. But I think, you know, we have to be really careful about being too cheery about that because the fact is that um, sexuality is still used as a means to control women, as a means to punish them. You know, we know from so many instances in the media, in court cases, that a woman's sexual desire is used against her. Um, and, you know, notwithstanding all the kind of movements that we've had, you know, the really kind of important and powerful Me Too movement, um, things stay remarkably static for women, actually, over time, which is, you know, very disappointing. The rates of sexual violence stay very um, steady over time, despite what's kind of going on in the culture. And I do think that we have to be clear-sighted about e even some of that kind of progress about, you know, an increase in kind of speech around sex is 
also a form often of a kind of commodification of it. So yet another thing that women have to kind of do or buy or consume or perform in order to fulfill these kind of always very, um, you know, exacting standards of what it is to be a contemporary woman. So I think we have to be skeptical. I, it's and you mentioned me too, and I know you've written a lot about me too. Um, and I, I, you know, at the sort of beginning um, of the Me Too conversation and and the movement, uh, I, you wrote you wrote about this, but also many women um, were sharing these stories of, of how the sharing of Me Too stories was in a way triggering for many women. And now, now that we're a few years after the Harvey Weinstein scandal sort of exploded and and um, led to so many other Me Too stories. Not that that was the beginning, but it definitely made it a world story. Um, how how do you think that we as a society have have learned from it? I mean, have we grown from Me Too, or has has little been done? I mean, where, what is the state of where we stand? I think it's very mixed. I think there are some undeniable gains that have been made. So, you know, one example would be. Um, the rise of, um, oh, what's the term now? The kind of intimacy coordinators that you have on TV series, on sets, on film sets. You know, the rise of that as, a, as an acknowledgement that, um, you know, just like you need a choreographer for fight scenes, you, you, you need somebody to help orchestrate sex scenes, not least because of the risk of injury and harm. So I think things like that have... Um, have been really significant changes. And I think they were informed by the Me Too movement, you know, just a wider acknowledgement of how imbalances of power make themselves felt in the workplace and in all kinds of areas of life in really complicated ways for women. So, you know, I want to be kind of positive about the things that that have changed. Um, one of my kind of concerns about the, the Me Too movement as it you know, unfolded in the last few years. Obviously, it has a kind of, it has a very specific origin um, set up by Tarana Burke and to do with women of colour and girls of colour. And and the, the Me Too movement that we saw from 2017 onwards was, first of all, it was so focused on kind of professions, um, you know, privileged professions. Obviously, you know, horrendous that women... In, in these kind of, you know, extraordinary high profile careers like the, the film industry are being subjected to unbelievable sexual violence and harassment. But the spotlight on those kinds of very photogenic careers, those kind of glamorous careers sometimes came at the cost, I think, of, you know, just re-entrenching our lack of interest in people whose, uh, you know, socioeconomic status or migration status or whatever it might be is placing them routinely at the mercy of those kind of power dynamics that make it really hard for them to get recourse if some if a boss is harassing them or you know is threatening to 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 um alert immigration authorities or or you know whatever it might be so that side of it concerns me but also i suppose the thing that you know one of the impetus is behind this book was my feeling that we have to be really careful about just assuming that speech is necessarily politically powerful because we are constantly told you know it's important to speak out um you know we will only get justice if we tell our stories and it may be true that telling 
the truth is an important part of getting justice. But I'm worried about the constant spotlighting again of women as the kind of as those who have to hold the responsibility for the kind of social and ethical um, truth of a situation, you know, so women and girls are routinely asked to speak and they're praised for speaking, you know, being very brave, telling their very painful stories, stories that are incredibly painful to tell often. And what are we assuming? Are we assuming that women have the duty to resolve these problems of sexual culture at sometimes the cost of their own comfort or or happiness or safety? Or actually, are we thinking much more holistically and socially about what needs to be done to prevent sexual violence and just to prevent sexual unhappiness, which is very rife? So I, you know, that's partly why the book refers back in its title to the work of um, Michel Foucault, because he in his work in the in the seventies was very um, was very attuned to to the kind of delusions that we might have about truth telling and speech as necessarily leading to kind of political emancipation. I'm really glad that you brought that. That's why I brought up Me Too in the beginning was because this is because it was triggering for so many women because it's so painful to come out with your story and simultaneously doesn't always lead to some sort of uh, mm. policy transformations, systemic transformations or awakenings. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, so, so if, if using your voice as a woman or urging other women to use their voices, um, whether it's sexual violence or, or other, other stories, um, how does that relate to consent, which is, uh, much of this, your book and your work is about in this, in this case is how do we, the, the conversation now is about consent, consent, and yes means yes, no means no, but but yes means yes, specifically. Mm-hmm. So how does this kind of play out in through the lens of Me Too, through the lens of, you know, is this the only path forward or are there other paths aside from deep systemic work that we need to do to make sure that women are safe and, and men understand uh, their roles in the matter and their responsibilities? Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's very complicated and tricky because, you know, part of my argument is that consent should be an absolute given. You know, we should only ever have sex with people who want to have sex with us and who we know want to have sex with us. Um, And, you know, to that extent, I completely support consent education and I support, you know, broadly, I think affirmative consent is the right way forward. It's important that, um, that, uh, that we acknowledge the need to to be curious and interested in what the other person wants you know that sex isn't just about gratification of one's own desires my worry about the, some of the conversations around consent is that they repeat this dynamic that we just touched on which is that they place the burden on women of managing the risk of sexual violence and the fact is of course we have to manage the risk of sexual violence we do it all the time we do it when we walk home we do it when we decide where to sit on an empty bus or you know all that stuff is just part of the fabric of managing risk what i'm really what i what i want us to be really careful about is noticing when we've internalized that sort of risk management approach, which is a very neoliberal kind of stance on the world that takes, you know, it takes kind of um, 
human badness as a given and it just says it's your individual responsibility to navigate around it. I want us to not internalize that into the way that we think about uh, consent, desire, um, but also just the way that we think about sexuality itself or what it is to be a person with a sexuality. So my worry with the consent discourse, you know, with some of the things that, that I repeatedly hear in conversations around consent, is that we're not scrutinizing that step enough. We're sort of assuming that there's a burden and a, and a need for women to be the ones to express their desires very clearly, to, to know their desires in the first place, and then to express them really clearly so that there aren't misunderstandings and so that you know things don't go wrong. And you know, that's a really, it's a really um fraught thing to ask of people, partly because it's not in the nature of sexual desire that we always know what we want, you know, which a lot of consent education acknowledges, you know, consent uh, isn't, you don't just give consent once, it has to be ongoing. But if we don't always know what we want, and we live in a society that shames women and punishes women for saying what they want. So when we see court cases, literally read out women's text messages or sexual fantasies and say, oh, well, you know, she liked a bit of kink or whatever, therefore she can't have been raped. What we're telling women is on the one hand, you have to speak about your knowledge about your sexuality, but also hang on when it suits us, we can use that against you. So, you know, there are so many reasons why that's fraught because it gets used as insurance, I think, for men who are worried about allegations of improper behavior. It gets turned as a kind of trump card against women in, in legal, you know, complaints, but also it's just an unrealistic standard of human life. We don't always know what we want. And sexuality is a realm that is social and conversational and dynamic. So what I would really like, and it's a really big ask, is that, of course, you know, on the one hand, we have to get the law right. We have, consent is an important legal concept. But we can't invest all our hopes in it, partly because it doesn't allow us to think about dynamics of power and unequal power. And it doesn't actually give us the tools to think about what a kind of sexual and social exchange is between people. What do you do when you have desires or, you, or you're confused about your desire and you're in interaction with someone else or other people who might have intersecting and differing desires? How do we manage that kind of social complexity between people what we have to do is find a way to address that and to equip people with the means to navigate those complex social dynamics not to invoke as the be all and end all a concept that will supposedly mark this clear line between yes and no and solve everything because it won't well and, and i think if there's one thing that we have learned through some of these more um well-known cases of, of me too stories is just the complexity of, of just the complexity of them. There's personalities. There's, there are, um, I read a story recently about an actor who, uh, allegations against him and he was, he retold the story and she retold the story and the stories actually seemed very similar, but it was the interpretation of events. And it, it turns out that one of, um, the woman was on the spectrum and she was open about that. 
And so her interpretations based on her emotional experience is very different than his. And to the reader, you could read it through whatever interpretation you're going through, but legally, I mean, very in a legal way, there was no violation. It was, there was just discomfort based on communications. So it gets very, I think what we're learning through this is there's, there's Harvey Weinstein, there's making somebody feel uncomfortable. And even from the, the retelling of the story seems like it might be, you know, maybe it's somebody from a different era who has not learned, uh, you know, the, the new behavioral patterns or hasn't had a great HR department at their, their work all the way to, you know, I felt this way and I didn't feel like I was communicated mm-hmm. enough with, and the other person did. I guess, I mean, the question is, this is very overwhelming, I think, for everybody. And and especially for those who are trying to do better. So where do we go from here? I mean, is there, are we overcorrecting? Is there some sort of, um, I mean, is there some sort of massive education that we can do specifically, you know, with men in particular? I mean, how, and women, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's one or the other, but where do we go from here? It just seems extremely overwhelming. Yeah, it is overwhelming. And, and I think there isn't like a really clear or, you know, simple answer, obviously, because it, this stuff takes in just so much of, of our sort of social and political fabric. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned there, those kind of situations where it, it can just be experienced wildly differently for different people. And, um, and that's what I think we really have to pay attention to is that you know, somebody can get consent from another person and that person can go away having, having given consent, but it can be, you know, the worst night of their life. Like, you know, the author of that, that article about the allegations about Aziz Ansari, that's, that's the phrase she used. And that was such a clear example of that, that, that acquiring consent does not guarantee anything in terms of what the sex is like. And that's why in the book, I try to emphasize the question of, you know, bad sex, that women all over the world are consenting to sex, which is painful to them, feels humiliating, feels degrading, feels upsetting, or just crap, or, you know, disappointing. And that's really interesting, because it shows that, you know, men and women's expectations around sex can be very different. You know, there's really depressing research that shows that for women, the definition of good sex is sex that isn't painful. It's a really low bar. So, you know, if, if that's the case, that, that sex can be so disappointing for so many women and it not always be, strictly speaking, assault, then, you know, the, the solution is to try to disentangle what, what ideas and norms and habits are enabling this bad sex that can feel like really, really awful. And I think, you know, the the kind of solutions, they have to operate at various levels, you know, and one of them I think is, um, is political and kind of socioeconomic. And, and, you know, I know that it's, it's fraught to say that bad sex is political because, you know, I think that there can be a lot of uh, reservations about kind of politicizing sex in, in certain um, ways, because of course we don't want to regulate sex. We don't, we don't want to kind of um, be the, you know, the, the overseeing state sort of policing what people should do and their desires and, and so on. And I, and of course, I mean, I, I, I also agree with that. You know, I, I think that sex is a realm of um, strange privacy and incomprehensibility that, that, that people should be, uh, allowed to to explore in all its kind of strangeness but I do think that sex 
is hugely political because it's partly about the distribution of resources. It's about the distribution of economic resources, you know, women who are dependent on their violent partners for a roof over their heads or to feed their children. They don't have access to uh, being able to have and demand good sex. They don't because their lives are at risk. Um, you know, women who are vulnerable in terms of immigration policies or in terms of sex work or in, in relation to policing. And of course, that you know applies all the more to women of color or trans women or migrant women, refugee women. You know, they are profoundly political questions that make women unable to say no or to say yes. So part of it is about, you know, very concrete social and sort of political um, policies that we have that, that enable people to live dignified and safe lives. So in that sense, you know, I, 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 having, having left-wing governments isn't going to solve the problem of bad sex, but it's better to have left-wing progressive governments than, than right-wing ones. You know, it just, if, if women help to live in dignity, they have more options in terms of their their bodily autonomy, you know. So that's one answer. And then the other is, you know, I, I think that part of the reason consent has been so powerful as a concept is partly to do with the status of the law in society. You know, we look to the law to regulate um, and to control unsteady human life. Um, and, you know, governments invest a hell of a lot in the law and in policing with often very troublesome consequences. But the law has kind of come to occupy this place in our minds where we will resolve these questions. But actually, one, one of the reasons that we turn to consent as a concept so willingly, I think, is um, because we find it really frightening to talk about pleasure. And we find it really difficult to think about sex education. And in the US, you know, we, we've seen that very complex history of abstinence education. Um, but the fact is, we have to have sex education and it has to start really young. And we have to talk to girls and boys when they're really young about pleasure, not necessarily sexual pleasure when they're, you know, really young, but about pleasure, about being um, entitled to feel good in your body and to feel and to feel safe and not to have your boundaries violated and so on. Um, so, you know, I think that early sex education is um, absolutely key and that's very difficult for a lot of people to, to imagine, I think. And then I think that, you know, these kinds of conversations that we're able to have increasingly, which I think is a really good thing about, um, you know, kind of cultural forms, TV and film and the representation of sex in um, in TV shows and all that kind of thing is also part of that conversation because, you know, so much sexual unhappiness for both men and women, I think, comes down to these really kind of restrictive scripts that just get inculcated day in, day out about what pleasure consists in and who has agency. And, and I think, you know, people have all and any gender suffer from that because the pressure on men to be kind of in control, to never show any vulnerability, I think that it doesn't just enable violence, it also inhibits pleasure for men and also for women. So, you know, it just has to be such a kind of wholesale, multifaceted approach, <laughs> which is challenging. 
Are there any regions, countries, cities, communities that seem to have some some something figured out or a little bit more their their concepts? I don't know if it's it's like a concept lab. There's there's a community that's really working hard to delve into all aspects of of these issues. There's, I mean. You mentioned left-wing governments. Obviously, that's that's important in making sure that women feel economically secure, so they're not stuck in these these toxic situations and often dangerous situations. But um, besides that, I mean, are there governments uh, with women, without women, that are really reformulating the conversation around all issues related to sex and sexuality? I mean, I think it I think it varies enormously. And I mean, it's interesting because in relation to the book, I've been having conversations with people in various countries about this. And, um, you know, in Australia recently, for instance, they're they're trying to kind of really um, make some changes in the law around consent, uh, bringing it a little bit more in line with the kind of American sort of affirmative consent uh, models. Um, And I think that, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating how, how differently it, this pans out in different countries. Because, you know, I've spoken to people in Italy recently, in Spain, and they they have said to me, you know, writers and journalists there have said to me that um, that they feel the conversations in my book are, are kind of, um, they've got so, so much of a way to go before they can start almost deconstructing the notion of consent. Because for them, even having a, a more developed consent legally would be you know a, a really a huge relief um so that so it's interesting to see how you know there's I think there's always a tension between like wanting to get the kind of law right at the same time as not wanting to be completely enthralled to the concept of of consent and for different people in different places that work will have to be done at different paces or in different kind of different rhythms um I mean, I know that the Netherlands have always had a, a very enlightened kind of sex education policy. I don't actually know a huge amount about it. There will be other people who know much more about it. And, you know, the thing is, there are always hundreds of people doing incredible work with young people. Like, you know, here I know people who are working in sex ed in schools, you know, trying against all the odds against a government that is so hostile to talking about sexuality Um you know, trying to trying to actually get people to to think about this stuff and talk about it in relation to their own lives. And I think there's so much like truly heroic work <laughs> that is done by people all over the place. Um, but it is really difficult for people to join up all the dots and think about, you know, the political and the economic and the kind of cultural aspects of it. Um, and I, yeah, I wish, you know, I wish that, I wish that that work could be done really consistently across all those areas and people just have to keep chipping away. I asked about this question, um, um, as I mentioned uh, offline, you know, the audience knows I'm in Greece, but I've been here at a conference uh, for the last week and it's, it's really fascinating because it's a, it's a very EU-centered conference with the Balkans and, and, um, you know, Turkey as well as, as, as in Israel. Um, so it's really interesting. We've had a lot of conversations about mm-hmm. gender equity and, and the state of gender equity and, and the women that have been at this conference have been extraordinary, even in countries where they're completely being um, silenced, repressed. 
imprisoned in some cases. Uh, but to hear just the complexity of thought around sexuality uh, coming from the United States, where <laughs> you think we might be a little bit more involved on these issues. Um, but of course, we're not. So I, 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 I say that democracy doesn't always overlap yeah. with a more free sexuality because when you have a movement of incredible women in the opposition party, leading the opposition party against Erdogan in Turkey um, or in Israel or, uh, you know, many countries, Hungary, um, Northern Macedonia, I felt like I was in, I'm, I'm <laughs> in the Stone Ages in the U.S. So, mm. you know, it, it's fascinating to see how all these things overlap and um, to see where people are getting it right or where movements are really, there's, there's some growth yeah. in movements and um, a lot of work to do. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that, you know, women can be really badly served by all kinds of uh, political systems. And, and yeah, it's not, you know, it's not a straightforward kind of um, hierarchy of kind of progressivism at all. You know, there are things that, like in, you know, in countries where there is a more kind of nuanced um, legal setup with regards to, to consent, that Again, that you know, that's absolutely no guarantee that the law works well for women or for victims of sexual violence, or you know, nor does it nor does it necessarily intersect with um, with a kind of you know more general conceptual toolbox that helps us think about mm-hmm. about pleasure and autonomy and, and these things. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's really it's very sobering how. Every country can really do its best to kind of make women unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so great. An old thing. Yeah. <laughs> Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, everybody go check out Catherine's book tomorrow. Sex will be good again. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Sex will be good again. <laughs> yeah. Women in Desire in the Age of Consent, uh, published by Verso Books. Uh, love to have you back on again soon. Just thank you so much for, for this incredible thank you. support. Thank you. We'll be right back. We're going to talk a little bit about climate and how media is uh, ignoring the climate crisis that just keeps growing and growing and growing. And every day there's more and more horrifying news. Today, it's the floods in Germany. What'll be tomorrow? Uh, We'll be right back after the short break. All right, you all know, I love my CBD. This is a new thing I've discovered because I tried it a few years ago. I bought the cheap CD. I gave up on it. Actually, even last night, I was at a dinner at this conference and we started talking about CBD. And my friend at the table said, I don't believe in CBD. I think it's a gimmick. And then I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I was that person until, until Sam Cedar told me, no, no, Sunset Lake CBD is the best. And then Sunset Lake CBD reached out to me and I tested their products out. And for somebody who has horrible, horrible insomnia, I can tell you, just a couple of gummies made a huge difference. I slept the entire night through. That only happens to me if I haven't slept or I'm like, you know, jet lagged or something. Um, it only happens if there's some sort of like, or I'm sick, but I slept the whole night through. And that is why I take Sunset Lake CBD tincture every night. Sometimes I do the gummies, try not to do too much sugar, but they're really delicious and they make a huge difference. They also have fudge. They also have... Uh, a salve that you can put on like your skin with arnica infused in it. Um, they have all sorts of products right now. You should definitely go check out their products. They are an incredible company that diversified a, a farm, a Ben and Jerry's dairy farm in Vermont. And on top of doing that, uh, when you are 
a consumer of Sunset Lake CBD products, you are supporting sustainable agriculture and a really good business that treats your employees well. Their minimum wage is $15 an hour, and the employees own the majority of their company. Pretty incredible work. Um, so if you want to go check out their products, there's all sorts of stuff. There's dog biscuits, there's fudge, uh, there's, there's cre hand cream now, uh, there's coffee, and it's all to help to, you know, with stress and aches and pains, and of course, sleep in my case. Go check out sunsetlakecbd.com. And if you type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, to sunsetlakecbd.com, you will get 20% off of your order right now. And once you're on that list, they're always sending you other deals uh, and new products that they're coming out with regularly. So go, go check it out at sunsetlakecbd.com. Type in Nomi, N-O-M-I, and get 20% off of your entire order. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. I am so excited to also welcome back Margaret Klein Solomon. She is the executive director of the Climate Emergency Emergency Fund, excuse me, and uh, she's of course the, uh, the 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 founder, I believe, the founder and director of Climate Mo the Climate Mobilization. No longer the director, just the founder. No, no longer director. Yeah. Got it. All right. Um, but of course she's come on in the past to talk about, you know, what it's going to take for us to wake up and make some, you know, real big, uh, actions, uh, when it comes to the climate emergency, she's a clinical psych psychologist, which of course is important when you're trying to communicate despair that we're facing and the urgency of dealing with the climate emergency. Um, so Margaret, I am sitting here in Athens, Greece. It is literally hundred degrees at 7 PM at night. Um, Germany, uh, had a major flood, like immediate, like no one thought it was coming. Thousands of people are missing. I don't even know what the latest numbers are right now. Uh, that happened yesterday out of nowhere. Of course, just, you know, 10 days ago or so, the Gulf of, of Mexico just erupted in flames. Uh, Pacific Northwest hit record highs, you know, completely out of the norm. Death Valley hit the record numbers. I'm just, this is just off the top of my head. I'm not looking at the List. This is just me thinking like, what are the latest climate emergencies in the last two weeks? So what's different now, though, is we are sitting here uh, with a new administration that, you know, has rejoined the, the, the Paris Accord, um, is, says that they're serious, has a platform at least that's serious about climate. Yeah, I turn on TV and it's just Trump's taking over the country again and like, Marco Rubio is saying this. Oh, wait, I, I forgot to mention the building that completely fell apart and, and uh, imploded, killing, I don't even know what the latest number is, but well over 100 people, residents of the building in, in Florida. Uh, there were two cars that went into a sinkhole six days ago in New York City in Manhattan. These are just the stories at the top of my head. And, and of course, there are thousands more that happen on a daily basis. What one, is one, one that I just want to add is that... Uh, God, this is it's so horrifying, but is that the Amazon rainforest is apparently now emitting more right. CO2 due to fires than it is uh, capturing through photosynthesis. Uh, I mean, I, I'm so scared um, and really, I mean, really desperate, um, which is why I do what I do do uh why why i i uh left being a clinical psychologist and uh, started the climate mobilization and i'm now here at, at the climate emergency fund funding the vanguard of the climate movement i because it's not 
you're right. You're absolutely right. The administration is not where we need it to be, but it's really not just them. It's like every sector, even including the climate movement and the philanthropic structure behind that, it, we're, it's, we're just not living in reality. And certainly the media, certainly uh, television and the news there. I mean, they're a huge part of the mass uh, delusion that we've got going on. But I, I mean, we're at one degree Celsius of warming today, right? Maybe 1.1. The most like quote unquote progressive or like justice-based organizations, the vast majority of them in the United States are calling to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius through a multi-decade phase out of fossil fuels and uh, industrial uh, carbon intensive agriculture, if if they even go into agriculture. But like, this is honestly insane. Like, it's one of these things where you can only, it only makes sense if you get so caught up in the like, um, the discourse, you know, the ex- the experts say this, or the, you know, the, the, this report said this, and it's like, no, no, let's just use common sense here. Look at everything that's happening, right? We're at 1.1 degrees. Look at the pace at which it is accelerating, right? Was this this bad last year? Was this this bad five years ago? What is next year going to look like? What is five years from now going to look like? Right. And 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 and, and just on that, <laughs> Mark, I mean, you say, what was it like the pace last year? This is after the year in which people just like stopped driving for several months and that like animals started coming from the wilderness because they're like, oh, there's nobody, everyone's inside. And this is after the year in which I'm not saying that, you know, distribution, obviously we were, Amazon was, was distributing more goods and there were still trucks on the road, but overall, you know, there was like almost like a, a quick little reset in which maybe we all realized, oh, <laughs> we don't have to just go consume all day long. So a friend of mine, um, Arun Chaudhary says, he's, he's a host on, on our network. Uh, he talks about how if the world could not come together and come up with a solution to the pandemic, there was this much chaos, we have no hope. Um, I mean, the situation is terrible. <laughs> I, I don't, I, like there's... I run out of words, uh, you know, like it's, we're facing the apocalypse. We're facing, uh, you know, an absolute genocide of the global South and a like collapse, a calamity in the global North. I mean, I, it's like, I, so, um, yeah. So again, well, and, and with that, we're just seeing broad failure to recognize how important this is and, and how, the moral imperative that we have to do everything we can. I mean, it's a little bit, there's this, you know, there's these, like they talk about like cognitive barriers to acting on climate and the, the idea of intentionality is really important to, to humans. And it's like, it doesn't feel like I'm contributing to a genocide in the global South by just going about my life as normal and just ignoring 
the climate emergency. It feel I don't feel that way, but like that is actually our reality right now, and it just demands a level of um, focus on the mission, a level of personal courage, uh, and willing to put mission over self, uh, a willingness to face the truth, even though it's hard and to tell it, even though it's hard. Like, I, I just, yeah, I feel, is there hope? Maybe. And it, it would only come, the only possible hope comes from people more and more recognizing that they need to help us transform this situation as quickly as humanly possible. Um, you know, that that's, that's part of their life's mission. That's part of their, you know, that's why they're here maybe even on this planet right now. That's, that's who I'm, that's where my hope is in, in those people. So I'm at this, this conference right now, um, in Europe where it's, it's mainly European and, and the climate is a big topic of conversation because I've left the United States. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> people, people recognize climate change when you step outside the United States. It's been a while since I've done that, since COVID. Uh, but there's also, there's just been exacerbating circumstances. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm of the, you know, I think that the American contingency that is at the conference is just like exasperated. Like there's a very clear personality distinction versus other times I've been at these global conferences where, you know, we're all on the left and we're just like, <laughs> save us. And usually it's the other way around where the EU and these countries are saying, well, what can the U.S. do? And we're saying, what can you do to pressure Biden to move faster, to do X, Y, Z? And through this, we've had several conversations about the Paris Accord and other, you know, climate initiatives and how cities can do more work if you can't get things done federally or through the EU or through other forms of legislative processes, depending on where you are. Um, with that being said, there has been like an opening conversation about, well, yes, we know the deadlines are like 2030 and like 24, and they're so far down the line. Like, and, and, and young people understandably are like, that's not realistic. You're not going to get there, especially since so many young people have been let down by neoliberal lawmakers. But, but they did bring up something that I, not coming from the business community, um, don't think about. And it's that once a company has to shift its policy, they have to change their entire business model, which essentially like forces them to, to divest from, you know, whether it's oil and gas or go into, you know, green energy, whatever form of energy it's, it's like by taking that initiative, it has like a, a, a there's a domino effect on other industries. And then simultaneously it, it sort of does happen quicker than, I'm probably not explaining this in business talk, but it does happen quicker than the goal date because it's all kind of happening at once. It doesn't, it's not like they have to do it by 2030. They have to start now so that they reach those goals by 2030. Yeah, absolutely. We need to start now. And yeah, there, I mean, a lot, a lot is happening and I, I view, I view all this stuff that's happening now in the markets and, you know, uh, Renewable energy keeps advancing. It's really it's really wonderful. For example, so all this stuff that's happening is like the preparation phase because what we need to do is take all those innovations and the e-bikes and all of that and just scale it up like a thousand percent or 
10,000%, right? We, and that, for that level of scale and that kind of speed, you need the government. You need the government to intervene in markets and say, this is what we need to do, um, like we did during World War II. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I mean, it seems like sometimes on the left, it's like you either, like you have to be anti-capitalism, like the whole, like across the board, but I think that with uh, an appropriately strong level of government intervention, for example, that says uh, we're going to stop all fossil fuel infrastructure and exploration immediately, and we're going to wind down our current fossil fuel supply over the course of 10 years, right? So, so like in the context of actually assertive uh, government um interventions, then we can see really the market doing pretty awesome things in responding and like, okay, well, that's the limit. So we got to do solar now. Okay. So, you know, if, if, if that's the case, and obviously we have to, to crack down on, on, um, the for-profit sector in, in so many different ways, but and that's happening. It's happening, you know, internationally. It's why, you know, the Americans at the conference were like, you, you have to do it. Like, if you want to rate it on Google, it's not going to happen over here. We've got Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin who are just like flexing their muscles and holding up everything on the planet. Um, so, you know, it's why we were really making calls to the EU to, to do what they do so well, which is regulate. Um, but simultaneously, it, okay, they're... There, there's the other side of it. Like, okay, Joe Biden, for instance, Keystone XL, fantastic news. You've done a great job, but you know, reversing Trump's decision. But there's still, he's still focusing on domestic oil supply to ease off of foreign oil supply. And I understand his intentions there, and we should be doing that. And it has geo, geopolitical consequences. But there's the geopolitics aspect of this. You know, this is such a tense time geopo- geopolitically. Um, partly because of the rise of fascism that's just, you know, creeping up in, in different forms and, and styles around the planet. That plays into climate. I mean, it plays into climate on one hand that these, these mini fascists and mini Trumps and whatever you want to call them around the planet just don't believe in climate change and they want to continue to go at, you know, go about business as is, if not worse. But also there's, there's the other, the, 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 there's a, the China-Russia, you know, U.S. game that's happening over specifically Russia um, over natural gas. And I know that's a hard thing for climate folks to be talking about, but it is what is that is from what everything I hear is what is the administration. That is the root of their decisions is how is this going to affect the geopolitical game? And I feel like in the climate movement and in the media, we don't intersect those issues enough. We like to put them in separate categories. You know, nobody wants to talk about geopolitics and and in Russia, in on the left, and I completely understand why, but it is very real that there is this this strange game over natural gas and, and other natural resources. So, I mean, how do we do that in the climate movement? How do we make sure that people understand, like, this is where they're thinking from? They're not thinking from we're all going to die in fifteen years, and we're going to have to get guns to fight the water wars of twenty twenty four. Yeah, no, that's really helpful context. And it's true that the climate movement, including myself, doesn't really think too much about. Uh, yeah, how how about geopolitics? It's true. It's much more domestically focused. However, it's in a lot of ways, it's actually pretty simple. Our our situation, 
um, which is, you know, we're either got to figure out a way to stop using fossil fuels as soon as humanly possible. I mean, honestly, ideally 25 years ago, but like, you know, as soon as humanly possible, um, or we're, we're all going to die. Um, so it's like, and it's like, okay, so maybe some people will survive and, you know, the Siberia, whatever, but like small, but we're going to set back human progress thousands of years. So like, even though Russia, U.S. relations and, you know, and like even though this seems critically important to Washington insiders and to the administration and and, you know, and it is important. It is. But we it we have to find a way to deal with that issue and every other issue in the context of decarbonization rapid enough it's going to give us a chance. Um, yeah, I'm a broken record, uh, on these things, but it's, um, we're, we're losing crops, right? Like we were talking about global food security here as well as everything else, all the infrastructure issues. So, uh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. (laughs) It's kind of my job. I don't think anybody is shocked by this. <laughs> All right. Maybe, maybe. Like I said, go buy a gun. I'm not somebody who's for a gun, but the, the water wars of 20, you know, 24 are going to be really tough on us all. So, 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 so if I, I, assuming you're right and your listenership isn't, isn't shocked by this, then it's like, I want to challenge them to uh, walk the talk or wait, walk the walk the walk. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and meaning like, it's really hard. It's a really challenging psychological thing to try to like actually think rationally and emotionally process this, like, you know, uh, what Timothy Morton calls a hyper object, right? This thing that's so huge and all encompassing. And it's like, you know, systemic and it's like an invisible gas and all this stuff. It's really, it's really hard to process. Um, but the fact is that millions and millions of us are having trouble processing it and trouble articulating it to the extent, uh, again, of the urgency required. So like, uh, speak up, you know, bring, bring this up at, uh, you know, political meetings and board meetings and, uh, ever friendship friend having friends over for dinner like we need to there's there's still even now a uh spiral of silence uh socially and in the media um that we really need to that we really need to target and thank you you know for for not being a part of that spiral of silence but it's one thing that the climate emergency fund is really focused on this year is uh protesting television news uh, studios as well as executives, um, for their, for the, for what they're doing. I mean, these disasters, as you rattled off at the top of the show, these need to be reported as part of the climate emergency. These are symptoms and the failure to do that and to tell this story. I mean, it's really, um, just shameful, uh, criminal. So, uh, at this point, it's really bizarre, but at this point, the Climate Emergency Fund is the only philanthropy that I'm aware of that's focused on funding a protest against media targets. Um, I, so, uh, yeah, I urge people to get involved either on the ground or on the donor side. So so what are you guys doing um, 
you're going to be protesting executives and, and different media uh, companies, but what, what does that look like? So the climate emergency fund is a philanthropy. So we don't, we don't do the campaign, but we're, we're funding it and tr- kind of trying to draw people together. Um, so Extinction Rebellion, New York City, uh, Extinction Rebellion generally has been a leader on this, their Tell the Truth campaign. So we're working with them in New York and in Washington, D.C. But in New York City, for example, they've been regularly gluing themselves to the windows of the Today Show, um, demanding that they talk about the climate emergency. Um, right. Like, uh, action and, and, you know, uh, prioritizing high visibility places and, uh, and actions. And, and also, and also one of the exciting elements of the campaign is trying to focus during moments of climate shock, um, such as like when Texas was frozen or, you know, the next time, probably not too long from now that the Bay area is the sky is just covered with a thick uh, cloud of smoke, you know, during those moments when the media is reporting on the shock and really the national attention is like, wow, what is this? Those are the moments to really deploy the protests against uh, certain television stations. I I think that through doing that really kind of strategically, we can change some of these news cycles about how these shocks are yes. uh, reported. That's that's the goal. No, I mean absolutely. It's uh, I, I, I've been I have this documentary I've been doing in, in Puerto Rico as our audience knows, and uh, started after Maria, and that this was one of the conversations. I mean, all eyes were on Maria for weeks. Remember, and. Nobody, I mean, there were multiple people saying, well, this is because of X, Y, Z. I mean, obviously hurricanes and, and the water's warming and it's just going to happen at a faster and faster pace. But it was the first time we'd actually heard a conversation on the ground during a climate emergency with all the media there about, well, why aren't you explaining why? And that's 2017. So it took us that long to get to a point where we're actually, you know, people outside of the climate movement are asking, why aren't you explaining why this happened? So yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Work. Um, where can people check you out? Uh, the climate emergency is the place to go. I'm, I'm also, uh, I also, let me just put in a plug for, uh, climate awakening. You can join a small group conversation, uh, sh- and share your climate feelings with a, a group of strangers from all over the world. And, uh, you'll go through a series of short videos, uh, and then, pr- uh, conversation prompts such as how do you feel about the climate emergency? Um, it's free. There's, uh, several conversations a month and they can be really, really moving. Um, yeah, we don't talk about the emotional side of climate nearly enough. And so this is a cool opportunity too. So that's at climateawakening.org. Where can people check out the work you're doing? Uh, climateemergencyfund.org uh, to see the the fund and the protesting television news campaign. And then climateawakening.org uh, where you can see my psychological work and sign up for a climate emotions conversation. These are a very cool... Uh, offering. It's a a project where you sign up for a call and you call in and you'll be placed with a small group of strangers from all over the world. And together you'll go through a series of short videos and conversation prompts, such as 
how do you feel about the climate emergency? So it can really be quite a miraculous and powerful experience to get people together and uh, share some of these feelings, most often which people have never spoken about before. So uh, yeah, that's an invitation to a, a free uh, climate emotions conversation. Incredible. Margaret, thank you so much for doing the work you're doing. Thanks for the work you do covering the climate. Right, we will be back. Thank you. We will be back right after the short break. Welcome back. Rose Adams joins us. She is a politics fellow at The Intercept, and she just wrote a piece titled Wall Street's Candidate Loses Manhattan District Attorney Primary uh, over at The Intercept. I don't know if you guys are following it. I was in race because uh, someone threw one of the candidates, or several candidates, but one of the candidates threw $8.2 million into the race, her own race, uh, Tali Farhadi and Weinstein, and did not win. So this was also not a ranked choice, choice system. So we have to make sure that everybody knows this. The city races were ranked choice, but this is a, technically a state race, I guess you could say, as district attorney of Manhattan. So um, there was no matching fund system where it was eight to one. Uh, there was no ranked choice. Really, this was an uphill battle for all the other candidates to compete with this woman who threw in, you know, $8.2 million, $8.1 million. So Rose, I mean, what was, how did she fail and how did everybody else uh, overcome all this? It's a secret. It's, it's an interesting story. And I think it's kind of a, a success story that points to how well candidates can do without just uh, funding and, you know, a huge arsenal and war chest of, of their own money. Because, you know, of all races that could be bought, this seems like it would be one. I mean, it's a kind of a, it's, it's one of those seats that not everyone is paying attention to. There's not a whole lot of turnout for this race. It's among a, a lot of other races, like the mayor's race that people are really tuning into and reading a lot more about and having, you know, much more educated sort of conversations and opinions about. Whereas the district attorney race, because it's happening at the same time, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. People are going to be at the polls and they're going to be voting, but you know, they're probably not going to have the time to be investigating all the candidates and really investing all their time and researching who who's best. And especially when there's eight candidates in the primary. So, and there's a bro president's race in Manhattan, there are city council races, people are just being inundated with information. So of all races where, you know, having a powerful ad campaign and the digital campaign to just have your name out there is important. This is probably one of, one of the most important races to just get people to know who you are, because most people are not going to know all eight candidates on the ballot. So Tali had a huge, huge advantage there just because she, you know, married, she's married to a hedge fund executive. They are multimillionaires. And she had all this sort of unlimited resources to put into her campaign. And then on top of that, she also had a lot of high powered endorsements. Hillary Clinton endorsed her. She got the endorsement of the local dailies, the New York, the New York Daily News and the New York Post. And she was just riding high. So I think it's 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 interesting. I it's it's hard to say exactly what it was that that kind of uh made her not clinch the victory because it was looking for months like it was sort of inevitable. But I think it's a it's a combination of things. Being the front runner made her much more susceptible to uh attacks. I think some of her ad campaign came back to bite her because she went really negative. And I think that that can really uh, that can really turn off a lot of voters, especially when there's sort of racial undertones in your negative coverage. And that was sort of an easy thing for her opponents, even the ones she wasn't attacking to attack her on. So because she was the front runner, because so what, she was, had, what was that? 
Oh yeah. I'll, I'll go into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so the, towards the end of the race, after she poured in all of her, you know, $8.2 million. And now it's, it's actually more like 9 million because the latest filings revealed that she, uh, donated $600,000 in June to her own campaign. So it was more like 9 million really. Uh, after she poured in all this money, um, she and her team ran all these campaign, all these ads, uh, mostly attacking the other front runner, Alvin Bragg, who won and who's, you know, presumably going to be elected in the general election. And another, another candidate, Dan Court and Alvin Bragg is black and Dan Court is white, but she, in these ads attacks, really kind of attacks them for their sort of, uh, their stances that she deemed not tough on crime enough against uh, rape perpetrators or suspects. And I think a lot of progressives will say that their stances on these these issues where, you know, they're hesitant to just arrest people in cases, even though that if they're even in, you know, sensitive and terrible cases, they're hesitant to just make arrests. And she sort of framed that as a, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to be good for women and the safety of women in Manhattan. Uh, and so that kind of played into sort of an easy narrative, especially with Alvin Bragg of kind of framing him as, you know, dangerous to women. And, uh, it, it was sort of a, a low, a low kind of, uh, attack in some ways. And so in the debates after those ad campaigns, she was really, um, she was really attacked on all sides for, for taking that approach in her ads. And so I think that that backfired for sure. Um, did she end up coming in? Like in, in, in what areas of Manhattan did she do well in or underperform when, when people thought she was going to do well in certain areas of Manhattan? That's, that's a good question. I think, you know, she, she did well in the places that you'd expect, um, you know, financial district, uh, Upper East Side, Soho, you know, the areas where it's generally a little bit wealthier and uh, maybe a little bit more conservative too. And also Alvin Bragg, he's from Harlem and he has roots in New York city and he's deeply uh, experienced. So he has, you know, before this campaign happened, he had sort of those, those roots in the community. So he could easily, could easily capture it also as a black man, the first black man to be elected to this position. He had a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, powerful messaging because of that, because of his own experiences at the hands of police in Brooklyn, in Manhattan. And so he definitely captured a lot of uh, more northern Manhattan pretty easily and the more progressive areas. But she she could get um, she she definitely got a lot of, you know, Upper East Side, some Upper West Side and some lower Manhattan areas. But I think the problem was the turnout was was just not enough for her. I mean, they, they were hoping that when the absentee ballots came in, that she could close the gap because it was a very close race between the two, the two of them. And she could have theoretically closed the gap, but there just weren't enough votes in those places. Um, and her lead wasn't big enough in those places for her to, to, uh, uh, close that gap and, and get ahead. Uh, do you think that some of the coverage about how much money she was spending affected, uh, some voters who maybe like on the Upper West Side, I mean, uh, let's just, for those who don't know, all of Manhattan is expensive. Yeah. So we're talking about the, the more wealthy areas of Manhattan. We're talking about like hedge fund owners, like really, really wealthy people mm-hmm. who uh, in most, you know, wouldn't relate to most people. Um, but so like on the Upper West Side, where it's still very wealthy, mm-hmm. very high educated, it's, I think it's the highest educated per capita district in the, in the country um, or in those neighborhoods in the Upper West Side. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people who lean a little bit more progressive, you know, 
with Catherine Garcia voters, for instance, who wanted to support a woman, Catherine Garcia and Maya Wiley. Um, and so they were like one, two, you saw a lot of that happening, or you're seeing a lot of it as we're analyzing the records, um, which would, would seem like it would play to her advantage. But there was this coverage um, in the final week, some of it, you know, some of it had to do with some racist or undertones, I could, I guess you could say, but also just she was buying the election for herself. And I think, you know, did that turn off some voters in, in, in areas where she thought she was going to do better, where that, that gap, like it made a difference. I'm sure. I think it really, uh, it was just part of the negative coverage that, that she was receiving. It was just such an unflattering thing to, even for someone who's, you know, wealthier to see someone kind of just funding their own campaign and wanting to buy this election. It was just precedent setting in kind of the worst way. And, uh, I think it was just one of the many things that made her a pretty flawed candidate and made her easy to attack as a front runner. Uh, and that's sort of the issue is if you're going to be a front runner and this sort of happened to Andrew Yang, if you're going to be an early front runner in a race because of your name recognition, mostly you're just going to be the center of all, you know, negative coverage and attacks for the majority of that time, even if towards the end, it seems like someone else is coming up against you. So I think that her, her self-funding was a definitely negative image. And I think it also drew attention to the fact that she's so wealthy and that that's sort of, that's really could present a conflict of interest given her job, uh, you know, prosecuting Wall Street and her close connections to Wall Street. And the fact that, you know, all these funders, her major donors were Wall Street executives. I mean, even people that weren't necessarily uh, progressive or labeling themselves progressive, people that just wanted to see accountability in government. I think that was a, a real turnoff because that's a huge part of her job is prosecuting Wall Street. I think probably arguably the most important part of the DA's job. And even on her website, it was not something prosecuting white collar crime was not an issue that she drew attention to and not an issue that she had really uh, any sort of any sort of plan for the way that every other candidate had an entire section dedicated to that. So it was just everything wrapped up together. You know, the fact that she was donating all this money and then also the fact that it just, you know, was part of this larger problem that I think really turned off a lot of people. Did she ever explain why she wanted to be TA? I think, you know, I mean, when you have that, I don't understand when you have that much money, like why, why is it did you wake up with you go, I would have BG. I mean, yeah. <laughs> unless that's your career trajectory. I, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting. It's, that's a good, that's a good question. I'm it's, I think that what is probably, is probably a problem with her campaign. I mean, she is pretty experienced. She's, you know, worked as a prosecutor before. She has some of that same experience as Alvin Bragg being a prosecutor, uh, for like the, for the, for the federal district courts and, um, for the federal courts. And she, so she, she has, you know, some background here, but I think a lot of her campaign leaned on her personal story, um, which can be a blessing and a curse. Everyone, every politician wants a great, you know, personal story. And her story was that, you know, she was an Iranian immigrant. She was an Iranian Jewish immigrant. She came with uh, her mom. She kind of escaped the, she, they escaped the Iranian revolution. They came to New York and they were let in by a, uh, you know, a, a kind, immigrations officer in JFK on like Christmas Eve. And so it was a very powerful story that she, she talks about a lot, but it's also kind of funny because she was actually, her story, her whole story hinges on the fact that she was treated with benevolently in this crazy sort of, you know, not normal action for, for an immigrations officer. And that's like her experience with police is that they, uh, you know, gave her family extreme grace and so uh, it's sort of a funny, it's a funny thing, but that definitely was a huge part of her whole 
run was her sort of personal backstory. But in terms of why she actually wanted the seat, it is a little bit unclear. She didn't have any, she called herself a progressive prosecutor, but she didn't have that many specific, very kind of nitty gritty plans for how she was going to really change the direction of the office. And so it was, it was all a lot of messaging and not a whole lot of actual proposals. And what about Alvin Bragg? Can you tell us a little bit about what, what we might expect from him? Um, you know, what he ran on for those who are focusing on this race too well. He, so he has just to give a bit of background on him. He has a lot of experience. He was a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, like, uh, like Tali Farhadi and Weinstein. And then he worked at the state level, sort of in a similar job as, as the DA, uh, for the last several years. And he did some good work. I think progressives will argue he, he really tried to, uh, kind of come after wall street and make some reforms at the state level. So he, 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 you know, prosecuted, I think the Trump organization before, I'm not totally sure on that, but I think he's, he's definitely, he's definitely made sort of that a name for himself in that regard. And also he, uh, his, his whole campaign was definitely left leaning and to the left of Tali's. It wasn't quite as progressive as some of the other candidates like, uh, Tahani Abushi and Eliza Orleans. They were really, really to the left. And the, the Working Families Party uh, endorsed Tahani and, you know, Eliza Orleans was the only public defender. And so she had kind of captured that whole uh, demographic of, of voters. And, but, you know, he, while he wasn't as left as them, they wanted to substantially cut the budget of the DA and really minimize the, the role of the office to just prosecute as little as possible. Basically, he wasn't going that far, but he did. He did have specific ideas for how to um, how to, how to kind of lessen the office's role in mass incarceration. He doesn't want to, he's said that in, except for, I guess, a few exceptions, and he hasn't been very specific about those, but he doesn't want to ever, uh, ask for sentences longer than 20 years. So only sentences that are less than 20 years. And that's, you know, a pretty good commitment to make. Uh, he's, he's said that he really wants to look at the kind of low level crimes that the office prosecutes and not prosecute low level misdemeanors or low level drug charges. Uh, so he's, you know, made a pretty big commitment there. Cause that's the, you know, a huge part of what the offices, uh, what the office prosecutes. And so I think with a few commitments like that, um, he, he, and also his experience being in a managerial role, which is something that a lot of the other candidates don't have. Uh, I think that, you know, hopefully we could expect some, some sort of changes in the way that the office works and just a, a less and a less, uh, harsh prosecu prosecutorial approach. Well, we will see. We don't know if he's going to be the DA still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got to knock on wood. <laughs> you never, you never know. No. Um, Rose Adams, super interesting race to watch. I, I, you know, for folks who are not in New York and maybe even some in New York, um, even more fascinating given the dynamics with the ranked choice and the board of elections and uh, matching funds, of course, in, in this election cycle. And, and also the consolidated primaries and all these voting reforms that have happened in the last uh, couple of years, too. So really interesting race. Um, I can't wait to look at the numbers a little bit more closely and see what kind of trends we're seeing, because it might be a signal that you don't necessarily have to have uh, millions of dollars to win these kinds of races uh, that don't have all the other assets that the other races had. So fascinating times. Rose, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Thank you to you all for, for joining us today. Uh, we will be back 
on Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Go check us out. We're going to be premiering then. But first, on Monday, make sure to check out the committee program with Arun Chowdhury. He's going to do a special on Greece, where we are. I mean, he kind of outdid himself. I was going to do something, but I guess like he had a like real, I mean, his show is all international based, so it's important. Uh, check out the committee program at 3, 3 p.m. Eastern right here on this channel. It's going to be a great, great show. I also make an appearance, which is really interesting. Teaser. It's very funny, actually. Uh, so check out the committee program on Monday. We're going to be talking about robots. I might be taking on a robot. A run might be taking on a robot. I'm not going to give it all away. Uh, 3 p.m. Eastern on Monday, and we're going to air a little special uh, on on the weekend uh, about the conference with a run and our friend Dimitri. So check that out as well. In the meantime, stay in solidarity. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melting pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show.